It's been a very um, organic day, which I guess is appropriate because Santa Cruz is supposed to be kind of an organic place. (laughs) (laughs) I live in Berkeley, which has its own organic nuts and flakes. So, uh, I guess I will talk about um, suffering and the end of suffering. Um, didn't you say something about me <laughs> talking about that? I don't know. Uh, and let me put it, first of all, in the traditional context of the Buddhist teaching on the Four Noble Truths and uh, bring some parallels to recovery. Uh, I've always found it very interesting that the Buddha started his teachings by talking about suffering. It's uh, First of all, you can tell he wasn't really into marketing. Because, <laughs> you know, if you want to sell the thing, you don't start out by telling people about their suffering. You know, you tell them about how you're going to bring them enlightenment and everything's going to be great. So he clearly wasn't interested in... Uh, playing people. What he was interested in was really making clear what's true. And clearly he understood that the way to motivate people to change is to start with letting them see their suffering because there's nothing that makes you want to change things faster than feeling uncomfortable. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. And he talked about all the ways that we are uncomfortable and all the ways we suffer from the, the sort of inevitability of sickness, old age, and death the, to having what we don't want and not having what we do want. Uh, and he also talked a lot about how we create our own suffering. How um, by... Um, it, it's not so much the inevitable discomfort of life that he was trying to deal with, but rather the way we reacted to that by uh, trying to change it, by struggling with it, by trying to get, push it away, or trying to grasp onto more pleasure. And this is where our work really comes. Uh, and this is where the, the Buddhist work really comes, is, is looking at that, the ways that we create our own suffering. You know, the, there's the stuff that we're powerless over, the things that we cannot change, and then there are the things that we can change. So the, the Buddhist suggestion about how to act or in response to this uh, truth this recognition of the truth of suffering was that he said you should understand suffering. And the way I, I've come to see that admonition is that it means that I should be aware when suffering arises. I shouldn't run from it. I should look at it. Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about this, about not being afraid to see suffering. That in our culture we try to not only push away suffering, but to look away from suffering. Or we turn it into drama. You know, a lot of the news on television uh, is about taking real suffering 
and turning it into sensation that takes it from the, the authentic experience into entertainment uh, titillation so to see the truth of it uh, and that if we see the truth of our suffering clearly we will be motivated this is what I call in this second book the higher power of suffering we think of su- don't think of suffering ordinarily as one of our higher powers I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of suffering it doesn't sound good but if we see, as I talked about earlier, how suffering actually is such a motivation for change, it's such an indication, it's information. Oh, there's, I'm clinging to something. I'm, what am I creating here? What's my responsibility in the role of creating this? Then it becomes this power that, because it's there, it's going to keep arising. And how am I going to respond to that skillfully? How am I going to turn this difficulty into something positive. Well, I can try to fix it or make it go away, but what I really want to know is what is the information? Is why I think that people in recovery have a certain advantage, a certain leg up from the person who comes to Buddhism with more of an abstract idea about suffering. When we have experienced, we have experienced the truth. If, if you are sober, <laughs> particularly, you have experienced the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering and you see that and you see how that works and you've actually experienced then the, the end of suffering at least in that realm that Buddhism kind of gets this rap as being about suffering and it's like some people who just learn about it superficially think, oh, it's, such, it's a negative religion because it's talking about suffering. Uh, I don't think Buddhism is a negative or a positive religion. I think it's a realistic religion, which is pretty unusual in itself, I would say. But probably one of the reasons people, some people don't consider it to be a religion because it's too realistic. Um, but the third noble truth then is the truth that, that suffering can end, uh, that there's a possibility of freedom. And again, this is what we see when we let go. And, and another way that the third noble truth is characterized is letting go will lead to freedom if I let go. So it's a logical response to the second noble truth. I see that the cause of suffering is clinging, obviously, the way to end suffering is to let go. Um, and this is, I, I like to draw the, draw the parallel with the second step, the step that says we came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, that the third noble truth and the second step are about hope. There's a possibility of freedom. Vital, vital step. It's it just as with uh, the noble truths. When we look at suffering, we can start to despair a bit. And people doing that first exercise, those two exercises—one about suffering and one about joy—there was a kind of relief from some people to get onto the joy. You know, it's important to look at suffering, but it's also important to not stay there. It's easy to get caught up in that and 
you know, again, looking at the, if we look with uh, sincerity and honestly at the front page of the newspaper, which I did unfortunately this morning, uh, the suffering can be all too apparent and can really uh, darken our minds so much that it's, it's difficult to find the joy. Uh, the same can be true of the steps that, or maybe not even the steps so much as uh, when we acknowledge our alcoholism or our addiction, whatever that might be. And, and this is true of many people that they, they come to see that, but they don't feel that there is a way out. And this is a very dangerous place to be, caught between step one and step two, between despair and hope. Um, I, I encounter this a lot in treatment centers. Most of the time when I work in treatment centers, the people have been to other treatment centers before, or they've been to AA or NA or CA or NO, something A. <laughs> and there is this feeling, this creeping feeling, that they, they can't get it. Yeah, that might work for some people, but I can't do it. You know, oh no, I could never have a higher power. I can't write in, um, I could never do amends. I could, you know, whatever it is. Or just, I can't stop using. I don't know much about the modern drugs because I stopped using 20, almost 26 years ago. Uh, and particularly the, all the prescription stuff that's getting more and more exotic. Um, but uh, someone was telling me at this treatment center about Suboxone. Some of you junkies probably know about this. Uh, supposed to uh, be a, something to get people off heroin. You give them Suboxone and they're not really high from it, but the craving for the opiates is removed. That's how this person explained it. And, you know, he was in the treatment center, so I don't know how reliable he was, but uh, it was information of some sort. And I had a bit of a, an exchange with him where he was kind of saying, well, some people just can never uh, get rid of that craving. And the only way for them to keep from going back on opiates is to stay on Suboxone. And I thought, well, but that goes against my belief system. Which I, I have to acknowledge is just a belief. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but my belief system is that that most people, that anyone, I guess, could potentially get to the point where they didn't have um, overwhelming cravings to use. Uh, and it can take a while. But uh, I've seen people who, one of my best friends in recovery, who's got one, a year more sobriety than me, she says from time to time that she still has the craving to drink after 27 years sober. But she hasn't had a drink in the 27 years. So, uh, you know, the, to me, there's a difference between having a craving and having an overwhelming craving that, or that turns into a compulsion where you act on it. But it concerned me because, I, you know, I think that in the medical community, we can get this, there can be this <coughs> viewpoint because there isn't sort of a spiritual element to someone who is treating people from a medical standpoint that, oh, some people can't stop craving, so we'll just put them on Suboxone and that's okay. 
And maybe that maybe that is okay. You know what? I don't know. <coughs> but but it doesn't. Um, that's out of harmony with the steps and with Buddhism, which are saying that yeah, there's a point where it can be very difficult, but the third noble truth says that freedom is possible, and the second step says that freedom is possible. Uh, and I just, you know, I looked at this person and thought, wow, that's, that's a, I think, a terrible place to, to have to live. The feeling that, essentially saying, I can't get, you know, I can't do it. The only way I can do it is with another drug. And I'm not here to preach about treatments of other treatments, but just talk about the the pain the pain of that place. And and you know, and I've used uh, antidepressants in my recovery, and, and uh, you know, I think that there there are appropriate uses of uh, medical treatment, both for for addiction and for uh, depression, anxiety, and all of that. <coughs> wow. Okay, the fourth noble truth, <laughs> before I get too wrapped up in that story. So the fourth noble truth is the way to the end of suffering. And like the steps, it's a comprehensive program. It doesn't say... Just be mindful, and you'll be okay. Any more than the steps say, just stop drinking and using, and you'll be okay. No, I mean, the, the Eightfold Path involves a complete change, lifestyle change. Livelihood, speech, the precepts, right action, all of that is just the way we live in the world. Step 12 says we practice principles in all our affairs. It doesn't say just when we go to meetings or just when we're dealing with drugs and alcohol. All our affairs. This is a, a complete change of lifestyle. And of course, that's one of the things that people resist when they come into recovery. And I, and I certainly resisted it when I came to Buddhism. I didn't resist it, I just ignored it. <laughs> the fifth precept, not to drink and use, not to use intoxicants. Oh, you know, the, and a lot of the teachers would say, "Don't use intoxicants to the point of uh, harmfulness or intoxication." I was like, "Okay, well, I'll just stay mindful when I'm getting stoned." <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, easy. In fact, you know, when you're getting when you're getting drunk, you know, I, I find you you have to be extra mindful just to kind of keep from falling over. You know. <laughs> You're driving, you know, remember that when you're like really loud and you're like, whoa, man, whoa. <laughs> uh, I gotta watch. Whoa, where's, which one is the line? And, and which one was the, you know. So, yeah, that worked for me. <coughs> I think that was a corruption of the teachings. Um, and people, uh, particularly when I see young people who are coming into recovery, really tough when you're when your whole social life is wrapped up with people in a scene, you know, a party scene. I, I, I often, you know, just whenever I hear that phrase, to partying, like, it sounds like you were just, like, 
just having this great time dancing and playing, kind of going, uh, is that what anybody was really doing when they were getting loaded? <laughs> yeah, maybe for a year or two, but basically you were just sitting around staring at the tube, you know, snorting, smoking, drinking, going out to the store, get some more, go to the dealers, play, you know. Oh, you want to go to a club? Oh, no, man. <laughs> want to go to the movies? No, like, if I go to the movies, like, everything will be wearing off halfway through. <laughs> Maybe if I eat some hash before the movie, you know, that'll keep me high. It wasn't partying. So this, this lifestyle changed. It's, it's really demanding. Uh, the idea, you know, the, the, the teachings on mindfulness are really not, oh, uh, be, sit down and be mindful and follow your breath. I mean, that's, that's just practice for the mindfulness practice, practice, which is life. And that's such a challenge. But if we're looking for freedom, a freedom comes in each moment. And the way freedom comes in each moment is when we let go. And the way we let go is when we are awake to the ways that suffering is arising in this moment. And then we see it and change. We let go in that moment by seeing it. And that takes us back to the first noble truth, being mindful of the suffering. If we aren't mindful of suffering, we can suffer and suffer and suffer, and it doesn't lead to any spiritual awakening. But if we bring mindfulness to our suffering, then it gives the possibility of, of ending suffering. So uh, I thought I would talk a little bit about um, one of the processes for uh, cultivating joy. Uh, James Barris has his book, Awakening Joy, and he has a whole workshop that's incredibly popular. <laughs> Um, and he started out doing that work some years ago uh, when his wife gave him a book uh, I think for Christmas about 15 years ago called How We Choose to Be Happy and at that time I was going to James' sitting group regularly and you know he showed up with, with this book and some of the teachings from it you know, and my first thought was oh god here we go how we choose to be happy. <laughs> because, first of all, I want to say that it's not my fault, whatever it is. It's not, it's not my fault. So don't tell me, you know, I can choose to be happy. I'm not, it's not my, you know, I'm not, it's everybody else's fault that I'm unhappy. So I can't make that choice. And second of all, it just sounded so wimpy. Because I knew that suffering and addiction, and writing inventory and stuff like that—that was—that was my work. You know, I needed to really get it. Uh, but if I'm honest with myself, if I really look at the process, if I look at the recovery program, if I—that there's something in there about being happy, joyous, and free, um, and that there's something in there about serenity, and that in in Buddhism. There's something in there about freedom. Something in there about joy. Uh, the seven factors of enlightenment include tranquility and joy. Rapture. Uh, 
and it was cl- clear to me that uh, this was, uh, you know, a weak part of my my own program, my way of approaching the world, was my relationship to happiness. Because, as I mentioned before, I used to say, I'm always depressed. And not only was that um, a statement about who I was, but it was really identifying with and almost reveling in and thinking, yeah, there's a way in which you know, that negative viewpoint is uh, something that makes us, we use it as a way of setting ourselves above others. Uh, you know, if, if you were as smart as me, you'd be depressed too. <laughs> it's just because you're shallow uh, that you're so happy. Don't, don't, you don't have the soulfulness that I have. I play the blues, you know. None of that ABBA stuff, right? Which is actually, speaking of joyful, I mean, that's really, you know, you ever get into an ABBA mood, I mean, man, that stuff will lift you right up. You can just let go, but anyway. <laughs> so the, uh, this book, How We Choose to Be Happy, as in all these kind of books, has uh, a uh, the nine choices. Again, I'm not coming up on nine choices. We've got the five ways to do this. Uh, but it, uh, once I let go of that stuff and got into the process, I found that there was a lot of value in it. And, of course turns out, and it was one of the reasons James uh, appreciated this uh, book and his teachings, is there's a lot of Buddhism in it. And usually where there's Buddhism I can find recovery as well. So, so I'll talk about a few of these um, choices. The first of the nine choices is intention. And this is a quote from the book, the active Intention, the active desire and commitment to be happy, and the fully conscious decision to choose happiness over unhappiness. Wow. That's a, just such an interesting idea to me, because it first of all challenges me to admit that I wasn't really <coughs> intending to be happy. I was intending to be enlightened and cool and famous uh, rich, maybe, uh, uh, creative, you know, a lot of things, but, uh, uh, but I'm not sure I let, I had like, let me put happiness first and see what follows from that. This idea then of putting intention first, something we've talked about today, and comes in, in, the Buddha says that intention is what comes before all action. And that it's the intention being the action that informs the results of that action. The 12 steps, it turns out, if we look at them from the viewpoint of intention and action, in many places, divide these up as well. Step three says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God, which is an intention setting. Step six says we were entirely ready to have God removed, which is, means we were we had set our intention. <coughs> Step eight says we made a list of those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. We set our intention. So 
So each of these, the, the, the steps actually divide up intention from action in several places like this. Now the second of the choices, accountability. The choice to create life, the life you want to live, to assume full personal responsibility for your actions, thoughts, and feelings, and the emphatic refusal to blame others for your own unhappiness. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, I, it's me. No. It's not my parents. It's not the world. It's not the Republicans. It's not George Bush. It's not my wife or my boss. When I say, you made me feel like that, no, you didn't. You had an action. I reacted to that. Inside that reaction, there is a choice. I have to look very closely to see that I can choose to not react in that way. I am accountable. This is inventory right here. This is 4 and 5 and 10 um, and 8 and 9 if you're keeping track of your steps. Um, To look at that. If you are dependent... The good news in this is that you are not dependent on others to bring your happiness. Because if you are, you're sitting around all the time waiting down, hoping that they're going to do the right thing. And if they don't, you're screwed, right? Or, you know, you've been given something by your upbringing or your, that you can't get rid of. It's just this burden you have to carry through your life. You have no choice. But if you have a choice, if you can actually stop and say, look within and see how am I causing myself suffering how am I causing myself unhappiness what can I do to make myself happier that is freedom there now it's real important that we make clear that when we're talking about happiness here we're not talking about pleasure and we're not talking about a continuous (coughs) state of bliss. They actually define happiness somewhere, which I think I, I actually use this uh, in, in my new book, but they talk about it as this, uh, you know, not as a, um, a mood, but more of a, a relationship to your life, that, you're, that your life, is, there's a sense of integration in your life, of wholeness, a sense of uh, uh, it works that you that that things are uh, as they there's a harmony in there. Uh, a few years ago, when I was really struggling with a period of depression, I, I remember saying at a certain point, "I'm depressed, but I'm not unhappy." And I was able to distinguish the fact that there was this emotional state, which was very there was a strong biological element to it, chemical element, which is one of the reasons I took antidepressants, because I really felt that I was I was being there was this energy in my body, a chemical or biological, that I couldn't do much about. But 
I wasn't depressed about my life. <laughs> my life, I liked the way my life was. <coughs> it happened that there were these feelings that I couldn't really, uh, I wasn't able to work with over a long, they, because they lasted for a long period of time, that was what made me feel like, okay, I'm just, every strategy I'm working with it didn't uh, solve them. I may be contradicting myself a little bit here, so forgive me if I seem uh, uh, that there's some paradox in what I'm saying, but that's kind of life. It's paradoxical. Uh, but nonetheless, to, uh, to how we define happiness is very important, too. And, and each of us gets to define it for ourselves. We don't even have to call it happiness. We can call it contentment or peace. It can be joy. Can be blitz. Can take many forms. Okay, the third choice. This one I really like. Identification. The ongoing process of looking deeply within yourself to assess what makes you uniquely happy, apart from what you're told by others should make you happy. Again, this is part of what the exercise that Jason was doing with you is. What makes you happy? And and if you don't think it's cool, but it makes you happy, ask yourself, is it more important to look good or to be happy? Uh, when I did this exercise with James, uh, I did I took his Awakening Joy course several years ago. One of the things that showed up on my list is golf. Now, when I was a kid... I was raised in this very privileged environment. My father was a lawyer. We belonged to the country club, and I played golf all the time uh, in the summers um, until I was about 16. And uh, when I became a hippie and grew out my hair, they kicked me off the golf course at the country club. <laughs> there were a lot of people that weren't allowed in that country club, uh, as they tended to be in those days. And uh, one of them, it turned out, was long-haired people. Um, but uh, for, and in any case, you know, at that point in my life, I was becoming too cool to play golf anyway because I knew that was just for Republicans in white shoes. You know, I, I wasn't one of those people, and it was easy for me to just go golf. You know, screw that. But sometime later in life, middle age set in, and you know, uh, uh, kind of, there's something about kind of going back to oh. Who, who was I? Who do I, who do I? What do I really like to do? And I realized I really had this craving to play golf, and uh, started playing a little bit. And then finally, last year I got some clubs, and now I have tendonitis in my elbow from playing too much golf, <laughs> which is just uh, karma. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it embarrasses me a little bit that I play golf because. I still associate, even, you know, if you go to the public course <coughs> in Berkeley, it's not a bunch of Republicans. In fact, I wind up playing with people I don't know. And they're, you know, one guy I was playing with, I swear, was like a yoga teacher, the way he played. So, um, and even the, his clothes, he was like he wearing yoga clothes. But, I, you know, I do have this thing of like, oh, people are going to, you know, think, you know, you're supposed to be this hip, slick, and cool Buddhist teacher, you know, and... You're a guitar player, and that's cool, you know, but golf? <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, I just have this joy around it, and I decided, hey, I like it. So uh, it's fun. Uh, this is a good exercise to do. Try it if you want tonight or now, if you're bored with listening to me. 
make a list of everything, and you can start with chocolate. You know what I mean? I mean, it can be anything. Uh, and uh, my list includes going on retreats, and going to baseball games with my daughter, and watching TV with my wife, and uh, teaching, showing up in Santa Cruz to share the Dharma. You know, it's, it's fun. And then, the, and then, wow! What the next one? Number four, the centrality. The non-negotiable insistence on making that which creates happiness central in your life. So you've got your list. Now, what are you going to do with it? Well, you're going to do it. And one way to approach that is to say, every day I'm going to do something that's on this list. Every day I'm going to do at least one thing, maybe a couple things. And you know, you might find out that you're already doing things that make you happy. And, and one of the things that I've found is that knowing that I'm doing things that makes me happy, that make me happy, makes me happier. <laughs> so there's the intention to do it, and then there's knowing, oh, all right, this stuff is on my list. Oh, that's great. I'm doing good things for myself. And then I feel even better intensify about myself. What? Intensify the emotion. Yeah, it intensifies the emotion. Yeah. It's that thing out there about Donna, if you read that, about how there's the intention to act that feels good, and then there's the action that feels good, and then there's the remembering the action that feels good. So, so that's centrality. I wasn't going to go through all of these, but I think I, I, I will do a couple more. Is recasting, number five, is a really good one. The choice to convert problems into opportunities and challenges and to transform trauma into something meaningful, important, and a source of emotional energy. This is what the big book talks about that in the promises. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will come to see how our experience can benefit others. Recasting. Taking. What can I learn from this experience? What am I learning from this experience? How can I take this experience and use it in a positive way. How can I respond to suffering in a positive way? How can I use that? That that completely changes. Because if we take our our difficulties in our life as burdens, as, oh, see, that's more, oh, and then this, and then this, oh, and then my dog died. It just, life becomes one insult after another. Uh, Certainly, if you're aging, if anybody here is aging, but um, <laughs> you know, it's one loss after another. Now my elbow. Now, oh God, you know, what about my back, my knees? You know, that's why you think I'm sitting in a chair. I don't think it looks cool. I'd much rather be looking cool, like on a cushion, but my knees won't allow it anymore. So I found out the advantage of sitting in a chair is that my knees don't hurt. So even though for a, a while I was really embarrassed, like teach in a chair, and then I would go and retreat and think, oh, I'm not really meditating because I'm sitting in a chair. I found that I could sit for longer periods of time. Wow, oh, opportunity <laughs> out of, out of uh, difficulty. Recasting, critical. Right? Otherwise, uh, life is going to be really tough. This is one of the ways. They, they, these guys who wrote this book interviewed these people who, who, were, uh, who tended to be happy people who really were identified, who identified themselves and that people who knew them identified them as being unusually happy. And one of the important things they found was that they always were able to make something positive out of 
out of their challenges in life. The opposite of what I, I like to say, that I can turn lemonade into lemons. So I tend to reverse the whole... That's a joke, but anyway. <laughs> you know how they say you make lemonade out of... What did I say? Did I say? You make lemon out of lemons. Lemonade out of lemons. Well, I make lemons out of lemonade. So I reverse the process. I can turn something positive into something like... Okay, never mind. I'll work on that. <laughs> it was probably the delivery. That <laughs> Um, so I'm just going to go through the rest of these fairly very quickly because we're running out of time and, and I don't want to leave you with this feeling like oh like, maybe there was like the one in there that would have fixed it all. <laughs> so number six is options: the decision to approach life by creating multiple scenarios, to be open to new possibilities, and to do- adopt a flexible approach to life's journey. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever had the feeling like I've got to get high. Yeah. I've got to get high every day. <laughs> Addiction is a very inflexible lifestyle. <laughs> Seven is appreciation. The choice to appreciate deeply your life and the people in it and to stay in the present by turning each experience into something precious. Mindfulness, mudita, sympathetic joy. Eight, giving. The choice to share yourself with friends and community and to give to the world at large without the expectation of a return. Obviously a Buddhist teaching uh, of dana. Obviously a 12-step teaching. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. Seeing that happiness, <coughs> ha- happiness for ourselves isn't an end point. It's not the end result. It's, it's to continue to share. And number nine is truthfulness. The choice to be honest with yourself and others in an accountable manner by not allowing societal, corporate, or family demands to violate your internal contract. Truthfulness is one of the ten paramitas as well. It's also a core principle of recovery. Uh, the word truth or honesty shows up a lot in the 12-step literature. And mindfulness itself, I like one of the ways I kind of like to define this is, is as a kind of Truthfulness about what is happening right now. So this is, uh, you know, there are many other things we could talk about in terms of happiness, but one of the things that we discovered is that just by thinking about happiness, just by talking about it, it tends to arise. Unless we're in that really aversive place. It's like, oh... You know, I don't want to hear about that crap. I can relate to that. Understand. And sometimes we're not in a, an emotional place that's ready for that. Maybe <coughs> maybe something's going on that's just not going to allow that. So uh, it's not like a cure. Oh, just let me talk about happiness and then I'll feel good. But it is interesting how, uh, again, it's the inclining the mind. When we incline the mind... It's like saying, uh, if we let's put it, let me put it this way specifically, if we incline the mind towards happiness, it's saying, "Am I available for happiness right now? Are is it possible? Can I ease in there? Is it um, well available? Is just the word that comes to mind? Is it available for me? And we kind of Inclined towards it, and th- that's why 
know, Thich Nhat Hanh suggests smiling as you meditate. You know, you turn up the corners of your mouth and you'll see sometimes you'll find that a neutral mind state will go positive just by doing that, in the same way that inclining towards joy. Oh, and you'll uplift. There will be times when you go, hmm, Mm. <laughs> it ain't there <laughs> and that's okay <laughs> that's just that's just information oh that's where I'm at okay, that's okay that's okay you don't, uh, if you turn it into oh what's wrong with me or oh, everything's a bit, yeah, then you're just adding more it's just to see oh yeah right now mm, not in that place that's okay let me just be with what's but the inclining the mind is just to see if you can get a little bit more out of this moment. A little bit. Uh, is there something more available? Uh, and we can do that with concentration. We can do that with joy. We can do that with loving kindness. We can do that with many of these qualities. This is the, the factor of effort called cultivation. Cultivation. You, know, you plant the seed. You try to find fertile ground, plant the seed, water it, the sun shines. You wait and see if it's going to grow. Some seeds grow, some, some don't. I was watching some nature program recently where they were showing some kind of turtles or something that were like, that for every 80,000 um, of their eggs, one of them would actually grow into another turtle. 80,000. That's, that's 79,999 misses. <laughs> I mean, what kind of a being? <laughs> you know, I mean, life is kind of freaky that it actually survives in this way. Any normal person would give up after 70 or 75,000 tries. <laughs> what made life decide that it would keep trying, and then after 79,999, one of them made it. All right! Yay! There's another turtle. The other 79,999, by the way, were feeding these birds that live off that. Did you see that? I don't know what that was, but... Uh, so, so it was bringing joy and life to the birds. Uh, the the book uh, brings to mind the book uh, title the spirituality of imperfection, which I, I love that title, imperfection. Uh, we find spirituality in, in imperfection, and the first page of that book starts out by talking about baseball, one of my favorite topics besides golf. Uh, <laughs> see that guy? We got the sixteen, but on the on the par four course the other day, a, a golfer, who a professional golfer. You got 16 on one hole, on par four. Is that good or bad? It's very bad. <laughs> he's supposed to get a four, and if he's having a good day, he might get a three. A bad day, maybe a five, or at worst, a six. That's a quadruple. It's like a, a quadruple double bogey or something. Like that. It's good for me. He went on and played the rest of the rest of the round. Uh, in baseball, if you fail two out of three times at at batting, <coughs> you're good enough to go into the Hall of Fame. Well, how do you fail most of the time, but keep going and keep, you know, keep a positive attitude? You, you ever hear one of those ball players, one of those athletes say, uh, "Oh, 
Well, I just try to stay, you know, oh, that's, that's gone. You know, when I come up to bat, I forget about the last at bat. You're thinking, I would, could never forget about that humiliating strikeout with the 40,000 people booing me. You know? <laughs> and then you step up and forget about that. That's mindfulness right there. And that's letting go. And it's, uh, you know, that, that determination. And it's also, you know, taking these elements, it's, it's recasting. Well, what did I learn from that last of bad? <laughs> I don't know how those last observations came from the rest of this talk, but uh, I often don't know how I get where I am. Uh, <laughs> why I need the Google Maps. But um, just to say that that this um, process of recovery and the process of the of the four noble truths are are offering us these uh, contemplations. They're offering us um, ways of seeing the world that will shift us out of our self-centered view. That will shift us out of our normal way of taking things between good and bad. Uh, success and failure and that there are many ways different ways to view the world and that happiness and freedom uh, largely come out of this engagement with really asking these questions um, is, is happiness really getting what I want this is something uh, someone told me recently that uh, Ajahn Chah who was Jack Cornfield's teacher said to him at one point you think that Freedom is getting what you want. Wow. Freedom isn't getting what I want. Okay, that's a good starting point for a contemplation. Right <coughs> what is freedom if it isn't getting what I want? And then uh, there's the, uh, the Cheryl Crow, the cliche that she has in that song. It's not, not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. I think that say that around 12 step meetings to do. Uh, well on that cliched note let's uh, I think we should, can move into our final uh, closing. So should we do some loving kindness? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.